You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yoshua Bubko of Beth Israel Beth Aaron Coates St. Luke, a wonderful suburb of that tremendous city, Montreal. Uh, Canada is not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about two other countries that are, of course, close to our heart, Eretz Yisrael, Medina Yisrael, and the good old U.S. of A. Because we're talking here, we're recording today on November 8th, which is actually Election Day in the U.S. A week ago were the elections in Eretz Yisrael. And uh, we did an election special, if you remember, a couple weeks ago. And it was pretty surprising because it looks like Netanyahu's win was a little bit stronger Right. Anticipated, right? Yeah. What What happened was the um, the uh, the right, as we talked, the right got smart. Uh, they allowed for many fewer wasted votes by uniting the right wing uh, parties. The parties. The truth is, if you look at the vote totals on the right, they're not in any way significantly different uh, than they have been in recent past. Uh, for instance, the last election, Yamina had seven seats. And what was called the National Religious Zionist Party had six, adding up to 13. There's no more Yamina. Bennett's gone. Biden, Yehudi, was not considered a realistic option. So the, the right coalesced and uh, gave 14 seats to the religious Zionists alone. But uh, so on the right, on the, on, for parties to the right of Likud, the uptick was simply from 13 to 14. But what mm-hmm. made the real difference was the fact that there were about 400,000 wasted votes on the left. When I say left, I'm, I'm using that word very, you know, you know, not specifically. What I mean is, merits wasted an enormous number of votes, and um, and you had the um, uh, the Balad party, the Arab party, that didn't cross the threshold. So, uh, you know, they, had they gotten in, it would have been a swing of maybe some people say up to eight. You got to look at the math uh, about eight, eight, eight seats. It's not easy to calculate this because. The number of seats you get per vote changes once you eliminate them. You know, it just it, it, the proportion go, is uh, evolves as well. So uh, uh, the difference in the election was the fact that the uh, other side of the political spectrum uh, foolishly allowed their votes to get away. 1992, for instance, 30 years ago, labor and merits together, labor and merits together had over 40 seats. Now, Meretz is out of the Knesset, and Labor has four. They are the smallest party in the Knesset. And for people as old as yourself, who you, you, you remember 1948, you, you remember what the state was like. You, you were born in the, well, in the late 20s in Lodge, so you remember all of this. And the Labor Party dominated the political scene. And even when they didn't dominate, they were major players. Now they're down to nothing. The percentage of what we call the religious parties, whether it's uh, what we say, Mahdal, or right. whatever they call themselves now, or, or uh, Degalatora, or Das. Right. I mean, they are major players now. They have got the, a huge amount of the 64 seats. Are, are right now, if you add up the three, if you add up the three religious parties together, if you add up the three religious parties together, that means UTJ, what some people call a Gouda, uh, together with the ultra-Orthodox Sephardic Party, the Shas Party, and you add those three, and you the religious Zionists, you add them all together, you're talking about uh, a vote total of about 24%. Uh, 
Shas got 8.25%. Uh, Aguda got 6%. Religious Zionists got 11%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's uh, yeah that's uh, you know that's uh, 24% vote total went up uh, 19%. Wow. Um, the, the, I didn't I tell you, I didn't notice it because I was running around that day. I was in Eritrea and and a number of Haredi neighborhoods. I didn't see people lining up at the at the polling booths, but I guess it was it indeed was happening. Um, yeah, and uh, so uh, they they seemed to be enjoying a day off. Everybody that I saw right. was running, <laughs> I'm telling you, they were running around in the park, and they weren't throwing frisbees. I don't think there are that many frisbees in there to throw, but they were definitely running around and making minyanim. There was there was probably must have been about ten minyanim for mincha in the major park in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it was just like everybody was like having right. a great so, day. So what it, what's interesting is the turnout. The turnout went from sixty seven percent in the last election to uh 71 percent uh the trend which is remarkable when you think they voted five times now in three and a half years uh that the vote to- that the vote that the voter turnout went up but the uh, the voter turnout went up much more significantly in um in religious areas than in uh than in non-religious areas or more in right-wing areas more than in left-wing Severide, yes. and chancellor i'm even going to throw in uh Huntley and Brinkley. I mean, I am Huntley and Brinkley. Listen yeah. to this: center and left-leaning cities. In the I, I was going to say you were more like Rocky and Bullwinkle, but go ahead. to pull out. I want you to pull out a rabbit out of your hat. I'm Edward R. Murrow. All right, here we go. In um, sent in center and left-leaning cities in the center yes. of the country, like Tel Aviv, Herzliya, Kfar Saba, Hodesharon, and Ranana, the turnout was unchanged from 2021. In contrast, cities that lean rightward, like Beersheba, Jerusalem, Ashkelon, Ashto, Tiberias, Kiryat Gat, and Afula, all saw turnout rates increase between three and seven percentage points. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, this election boiled down to, there's not a sea change in how Israelis see the world. There's no sea change in uptick in, uh, in, in, in who, who's right-wing and who's left-wing. What happened was the right wing coalesced, the left wing did not, and the right wing showed up and the Haredim showed up. But in terms of even the vote total, but if you look at the whole block of BB's people, the whole block on the other side of the spectrum, there's, not, there's negligible votes separate them. Uh, okay, so, all right, listen, great job on the numbers. I am never going to doubt you again because I thought you just basically open up your belt and just let this out of your stomach. You obviously here uh, have done your research. What's going to be the, what, what, what difference is going to make here in terms of government? Okay, so the question the is, the big questions like this is that, is that I, I'm going to leave a big issue off the table for a minute, which is how BB is concerned about the, the court cases against them. Let's pretend that doesn't exist for a minute. Historically, BB has been a very cautious person. Um, he doesn't want <coughs> to be the most left-wing guy in his coalition. In the past, he has reached out to broaden his coalition, broaden people like Barack or whoever. He's, he, that's what he's done historically. Today, he doesn't have that option, although there are rumors about you know, possible conversations with, with Gantz and even with Lapid. Nobody really thinks that there's a serious possibility. Certainly not of Lapid going in, in with in with him, and and, and probably not uh, Gantz. Uh, so Bibi will be stuck with a coalition that he doesn't like, uh, where he's the most left wing guy, 
where he's continuously being pressured by his coalition partners on items on the religious and right-wing agenda. On the religious agenda is increased funding uh, for yeshivas, increased funding for poor children, which obviously benefits Haredi families disproportionately. And from the religious Zionists uh, and, and from the, uh, the right-wing on issues like some form of annexation of the settlements in Yehud and Shomron, uh, also on issues like cracking down on the lawlessness in the Negev and the Bedouin communities and the lawlessness in the Arab cities in the north, uh, where, remember, what was Ben Gavir's uh, slogan? Uh, is, Whose country is it? Mia Balabayat. And, and the, you know, the sense that Israelis, by the way, are not xenophobic or racist, but there is a sense among many in Israel that they're, that the government has lost control on certain in certain areas. I mean, you can't point to anything dramatically left wing the Bennett Lapid government did, you know, right, you know, other than you know allow uh, the, the Arabs party into the uh, into the coalition. They didn't give up any land, right? They didn't, you know, they what did they do? Uh, yeah, they reformed cautious a little bit on the religious agenda. Uh, they, they attempted some things on conversion; those are easily reversible. But um, but in, in general, what did they do so left wing? And, and they and, and two things uh, I think helped the right wing win. Number one, that the lawlessness which I referenced, and the other issue was just the tone of the government. Uh, the tone of the government was culturally very left wing. What I mean by that is, it, it symbolizes the substance. I mean, one thing they did left wing was remove Tanakh. Bible study from the high school curriculum, from the mandatory high school curriculum. Uh, there were some elements in the health department. There was a you know fellow from the gay community running things there, and in the health ministry who did certain things about transgender uh, the treatment and, and hospitals. And but the general had been run in any country in Europe. It was Yeshatid. There's a future for for gays. There's a future for women. There's a future for senior citizens. There's a Yeshatid. There was nothing Jewish in that ad, nothing Zionist in the ad. And although Lapid himself has spoken passionately about, of course, the destiny of the Jewish people, and even with great respect about uh, religion, the, the the tone of the government was um, not a tone that reflected the country's Jewish values or even Zionist aspirations. In, in other words, basically, we're not a, we're a democratic state, not a Jewish state. No, in other that's words, a, that's that, what we aspire to. That means, listen, the most well-rounded Israeli, right, is a very traditional Jew, right, who Friday night is at home with his family eating Shabbat dinner, who prides himself on Israel's economic achievements and thinks of Israel as an enlightened liberal democracy and wants to live in both worlds at the same time. And, and they don't see those two things as being contradictory. There are parts of Israel that view the other part as a contradiction. There are elements in the strong elements in the religious community that see that whole aspiration to being a liberal democracy as antithetical to Judaism. And there are, of course, many on, on the left who believe that the religious identity of the country is antithetical to being a liberal democracy. The fact is, most Israelis want it to be both. Right? They don't want a government that dumps on religion, that disparages religion, but neither do they want a government that coerces religion. That's where they are. And, uh, and and when governments veer too far in either direction of either denying Israel's character as a liberal democracy or denying Israel's character as a Jewish state, that's where you run into the extremes. And people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir 
represent that that element of Israel that does not embrace Israel as a liberal democracy. So do you see uh, this version of Bibi uh, reaching out to Arab partners a little bit uh, more vigorously, or do you see him um, you know, retreating? Do you see him basically holding up uh, and just appeasing the people that are in his coalition, or do you see him making some bold moves? I think if Bibi makes any bold moves, he'll attempt to make bold moves internationally, not domestically. In other words, what Bibi desperately wants is a deal with Saudi Arabia, which may prove to be elusive. The Saudis are very happy with how things are now. They have uh, quietly consented and encouraged to Israel's relations with other countries in the Gulf. They do not see any great advantage to themselves at this moment in, uh, in, in, in having a formal diplomatic relations with Israel. The country is going under dramatic changes, very dramatic changes in Saudi Arabia in terms of liberalizing things and in terms of keeping radicalism at bay and, and changing really the approach of the, the government on many issues. So I don't know if they need another change right now. I really don't. So, so basically, the, the, uh, the, are. The un- which are, as you implied, the underground channels of connection between yeah. Saudi Arabia and Israel are there, right? I mean, Israelis are welcome there now. It's a, it's a new world, so I don't know. It, it, so I don't know what the. In other words, if you're a Jew and you're an Israeli, obviously it's something you would aspire to. It would it would concretize Israel's uh, embrace in, 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 by the region. Uh, it would be wonderful. But again, if you're a Saudi, what's the great advantage? I mean, uh, the fact that the, Sa- the Saudis are now alienated more from America. Uh, because of Biden's mishandling of the Saudi portfolio, disparaging them during his campaign and continuing to do so as president, and then ironically and almost pathetically and desperately begging them for oil and being, you know, you know, dismissed and, and disrespected. The question, and then you have too many people in this government now getting angry at the Saudis and talking about a revaluation of relations, which is completely foolish and reckless. The Americans need needs Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia needs America. So it's it's foolish to disparage the, this relationship. But the question is, does that distancing from the U.S. at this moment make it more or less likely that Saudi Arabia will have better relations with Israel? On the one hand, you could argue the more isolated Saudi Arabia feels from the protective uh, uh, defense of, of the U.S., the more they'll need Israel. On the other hand, if that, if, if Saudi skepticism about American military support, right, leads the Saudis more into the Russian embrace or the Chinese embrace, what does that mean? So the question is, will the Saudi distancing push them closer to China and Russia or push them closer to Israel in its in its belief that it needs to confront Iran. Listen, the, the lack of support for Saudi Arabia didn't begin with Biden. It began with Trump. When, the, when, when, when Iranian drones targeted the Saudi oil fields when Trump was president, Trump didn't respond. And that enraged the Saudis. And then you had the Biden administration continue that distancing. So the question is, the, the, what, where does that lead the Saudis to look? Does it look over their shoulder to the... Uh, the Russians and the Chinese, and the Russians today, thankfully, are, are on the ropes because of Ukraine, or does it have them move, look, you know, move closer to Israel? Uh, that, that's, that's now the BB's back with this new government. Uh, how do you see him engaging uh, Putin and Zelensky? 
Uh, you know, I, I, you know, uh, uh, BB had a phone call with Zelensky already, where he promised to reevaluate things. Israel is helping Ukraine. The things it won't do are for many different reasons. The Iron Dome, for instance, there is a fear in Israel that if it gets transported to Ukraine, it may end up in Russian hands, which means Iranian hands. We all know how much Iran is helping Russia right now in its conflict. So that's an open question. Bibi has a long relationship with Putin, a warm relationship with Putin. Is that relationship still intact, given how much assistance Iran is giving to to Russia and and how that may certainly alienate Russia from Israel? Uh, Or uh, is Bibi, I don't know, It's it's an open question. What happens with Bibi's relationship with Putin, which was very effective in allowing Israel a pretty free hand getting rid of Iranian assets in Syria. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that's a real question. Yeah, I, again, this is probably um, uh, something which is you obviously understand, but I, I think it's worth mentioning that Putin discounts anything Bibi said on the uh, campaign front, because he knows that was just the way to get into power. But clearly, Putin relates to Bibi with real politic, not based on any promises right. or anything he might have said. Uh, he's not going to be mad about any sort of saber rattling or anything he might have said to get elected because I mean, he knows that's a bunch of garbage anyway, right? So the, I mean, for instance, I mean, there are so many things that cut both ways here. It's a very confusing landscape because the Russians have now moved significant military assets, even generals, out of Syria into Russia now to battle Ukraine. They've moved stuff out of Syria. So on the one hand, you know, Israel has less to worry about when they bomb stuff in, in Iran. They don't have to worry about Russian anti-aircraft or anything anymore. On the other hand, Russia was a counterbalance to Ukraine, to Iranian influence in Syria. And now that's been removed and it may help, you know, the ascendancy of Iran in Syria. So many things here cut both ways. The Iranians are now busy with internal turmoil. What does that make them more likely to do? To retrench and to think and to move inward and to leave Israel alone for a while? Or do they seek an, a foreign conflict to distract the attention of their citizens away from the protests? Well, what, what do they do? So there are many things here that cut both ways and a lot of unknowns. There's no question that the same issue that was uppermost in Bibi's mind in the international arena when he was first prime minister is still the issue that's uppermost in his mind today, which is Iran. And what do you do with the threat from Iran, which has only gotten worse because of their uh, entrenchment in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen. And, uh, and there's this arc of Iranian influence and dangerous behavior that surrounds Israel. Right. And let's now make the segue here to the U.S., because we know that, and I'll tell you, this is a little bit of gossip, which I, it's probably public knowledge, but I happen to have sat on uh, my last Sabbath, my last Shabbos in uh, Eretz Yisrael when I was in Kasaria. I sat across the table from uh, a young woman who was the translator of Bibi's autobiography from English into Hebrew, because right. Bibi is more comfortable writing in English than he is in Hebrew. Right. Um, despite you know his forceful Hebrew statements, Bibi thinks, and in many ways is an Amer- is, a, is an American product, um, and, and 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 therefore, since now Bibi's back, what's going to be his uh, cards here dealing with Biden? Who now? Let's go on to the like I said, the next part of our program uh, might be somewhat of a uh, hampered president uh, because it seems like everybody says the House. 
uh, in, in today's election that's happening now in the U.S., that the House is probably going into Republican hands. Yes, it will. Right. right. Uh, the Senate is somewhat of a toss-up, but clearly Biden is not going to be as, I don't even know if you ever call him bold at, at all. How do you see Bibi now relating to uh, Biden? Listen, uh, Biden hates years? Listen, the administration is packed with people who hate Bibi. Uh, I, I don't understand. I'm not sure if people who aren't in the political world understand how the, the enormous hatred <laughs> there is a partisanship, and they view Bibi as a Republican. Mm-hmm. From the time Bibi, even before, but from the certainly from the time Bibi strode to the podium in Congress and denounced Obama's Iran deal at the invitation of John Boehner at the time, clearly a partisan act uh, in the mind of the Democrats. Um, he's poison, uh, and remember, this is in many ways the most Jewish administration America has ever seen. You have a chief of staff. Klain, who is who is Jewish, the Secretary of, of State is Jewish, Blinken, Secretary of the Treasury, Yellen, is Jewish, the head of the Department of, of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, is Jewish, the Deputy Director of the CIA, David Cohen, is Jewish, the head of national, the Director of National Intelligence, Abraham Haynes, is Jewish, uh, and uh, the head of the CDC is Jewish, the head of COVID response is Jewish, oh, it, it, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, is Jewish, his name used to be Garfinkel, uh, and uh, or I should say the family's name. He didn't change it. And so you're packed with Jews, but you're packed with Jews. And then you got the, uh, the poor second man. What's his name there? Doug Emhoff, married to the Chalet. <laughs> and, uh, and so you have you have a very Jewish administration. I mean, remarkably, people, I don't know why Jews don't even recognize this. You have a remarkably Jewish administration, but the, the administration, they hate BB viscerally, right? Robert Malley, the head of the Iranian negotiating team for the Americans, hates BB. These are people that hate him viscerally. It's hard to imagine a good so, conversation. So, so now that he is once again the public, but again, he, it's also an administration that learned that public disputes with Israel benefit no one. So, whatever disputes will probably be quieter than they were in the than in Obama's time. With, with an Iran deal not on the horizon, the points of tension are are, are lessened. So that that's a, that's a very positive thing, um, you know. So it, it's hard to know where the disputes would be. Listen, you know, I don't know if people remember even, but when John Kerry was Secretary of State uh, under Obama, uh, he said some horrible things. I mean, he tried to push Israel into a crazy deal with Gaza that. Egypt had to save Israel from the Americans at that point. If people remember what was going on in the Gaza conflict in 2014, but John Kerry was the guy. I mean, I you know I watched the video again recently. He when he was at the Saban Forum, John Kerry said things like, and I and he repeated it. He kept repeating it for emphasis. Israel will never have peace with Arab countries unless there's a resolution to Palestinian. I'm telling you right now, it cannot happen. I met with them again recently. They all swore it would never happen, and it's happened. So, you know, a lot of stuff that used to go on, um, you know, in the Obama administration, I don't think there'll be those kinds of points of open conflict like there were under Obama. So, but the question is, what will the Americans be pushing the next couple of years, I don't. There's no evidence that they're going to push for some resolution, uh, you know, to the situation in the territories, and unless you know, but you never know. I mean, the worst things, you know, the things that you know, there's always things that happen that are surprising. If a conflict breaks out with Gaza or Lebanon, who knows what direction things will take? Uh, but uh, if uh, 
And again, uh, uh, Biden, after the midterms today, will be a weakened president. He won't have uh, to be able to, the ability to push through legislation anymore. Uh, they'll be looking forward to the 2024 uh, election. So uh, I, think I, it's I, don't, little, I don't think there'll be much tension, but neither will be there be any. Israel, uh, what do you see happening here uh, besides the fact that the Republicans take back the House? What do you see well, happening? Okay, a couple of things. First of all, they will take back the House. The margin is only five seats right now. I mean, it is, it, you know, traditionally in the midterms, with the exception of under George W. when he was riding high after 9-11 and all right. of that. Um, but, um, uh, you know, there's usually a huge shift, 40 seats even, 60 seats with Trump. I mean, it's a, there's always a huge swing uh, in the midterms. But <clears throat> it's sad that the Republicans aren't going to do better because that, and it's because of Trump they won't do better because there were some really good Republican candidates that got knocked off in the primaries because of Trump's endorsements of, 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 of some clowns like like Oz in Pennsylvania, who may lose. He may win. I mean, it's a narrow race there in Pennsylvania. Uh, the fellow Oz beat in the primaries would be way ahead of Fetterman in the polls right now, right? A very capable fellow. But, uh, you know, like Trump did in, in, in Georgia in, in, the, in, in, in 2020, he undermines his own party by going after some of the best people in the party and uh, and elevating, uh, you know, some some crank. Right. So I think again, just for our listeners' edification, Oz and of course the Georgia Senate. I don't want to, a lot of people are confused. People think Herschel is Jewish. He's not. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I know. I know. I remember when <laughs> I remember when he was uh, a candidate for the Heisman Trophy. I remember that was part of it. The yeah. of Herschel Walker is not Jewish. I just I know people get him. He looked Jewish. Yes, yes, I've seen a lot of people like him, you know, rushing for the kiddish, as we say, um, <laughs> get, getting to that chopped liver before. I'm not sure how we got the seats like walkers that, that Walker is aspiring for, like the one in Pennsylvania. Right. Um, do you see the Republicans taking the Senate? I mean, obviously, when most people listen, listen I, it, 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 uh, again, it's uh, first of all, I hope it's not a disputed election. Pennsylvania needs to get its act together on these mail-in votes. They keep having these court decisions about wrongfully dated or undated ballots on the mail-ins. Uh, and it was a problem in the last election. I don't know why they and they, and they won't count mail-in ballots till after the voting's over, which is again ridiculous, which delays the result, which creates a vacuum for into which stupidity leaps. Um, so I, I don't know. Listen, it, uh, Senate races seem to be tight. I don't know, you know, polling sometimes can be remarkably yeah, so, and terribly well, inaccurate. They tend to undercount Republicans. They did in the last election. Some people think they may have overcorrected this time. You read the guys who write about polling, you're getting a, a you know, it's not a clear picture on, yeah. on, on, on the I, 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 I know, I, I know Nate Silver in 538 and his team right. uh, have been talking about a possible, a very possible uh, taking the Senate and the House. Yes. And let's, let's say what it's, it's not really like what you said, I think, just a typical uh, midterm. Part of it is because there's a deep and very strong dissatisfaction with the way the prices of all... I mean, there's the an article on Bloomberg this morning. I mean, this is unbelievable, a shocking article, because the Republican critics have been screaming, the op-ed guys, the smart guys, about how ridiculous the last stimulus was, how it, cre how it played a role in the a significant role in the uptick in inflation. And there's an article from inside the White House with sources of how angry Biden is at his economic advisors who kept telling him not to worry about inflation, that it was all transitory, it was all about supply chain. And, and they ignored Larry Summers and others 
who you know who was uh, the Treasury Secretary under Obama, no right wing guy, Lawrence Summers, you know, warning them that it would create inflation. His economic advisors ignored Summers, uh, you know, and, and Biden feels he was led down the garden path. Democrats thought they would be saved by the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs overturning uh, Roe v. Wade that that would energize their voters. Fact is, most voters are voting on three things: inflation, crime, and immigration. And on all that stuff, Biden is in deep trouble. Inflation is is is, is very high. The uh, illegal immigration at the border is is uh, it's, it's setting records. It's already reached the, the record mark in November for two over two million have, have crossed. It's a um, and and Democratic run cities are uh, are you know are are, are a wash in crime and uh, homicides are up, our, uh, felonies all all are up. You know, I, I want to tell you, I, I was I, I happen to watch Meet the Press. I don't watch it often. I watched Meet the Press this week, and a very articulate guy representing the Democrats was on a congressman from New York who needs Hasidic votes. Interesting fellow, Maloney. Anyway, so. Uh, and he made a very strong case why the, the Democrats aren't soft on crime. And everything he said was true. You know, they passed an anti, you know, gun legislation, funding police, all this stuff. But the reality is that the that Chuck Todd on the meat press ignored and, people, and the Democrats won't, won't concede is the following. Number one, crime is highest in Democratic-run cities, places like Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York. These are cities that elected in San Francisco, elected very left-wing prosecutors. Chicago. And have passed laws on bail that have turned into turnstile justice. That's, we, we know that, revolving door justice, I should say. And, um, and, and, you know, and number two, when an American hears the words defund the police, they do not associate that with the Republicans. Okay, they associate it with the Democrats. That's the reality. And the Democrats didn't do enough to distance themselves from the fringes of their party, which have left cities like Portland and other places. I mean, the Wild West. I mean, it's, it's you know, of homelessness and drug use and, and open shoplifting, uh, you know, in these cities. <clears throat> and that is certainly hurting. Uh, listen, what brought, what brought Richard Nixon to office? It was law and order in the, you know, and what, what brought Reagan to office? It was law and order. And, and people vote on law and order and are stuck with Trump. Uh, there's no one who can beat Trump in a Republican primary, and there's no Democrat who can lose to Trump in a general election. Right. So the Republicans are <laughs> somewhat of in a pickle themselves because they're, they're, they're in a terrible yeah. position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Trump is already what's he attacking? DeSantos? What does he call him? DeSanctimonious? DeSanctimonious. I, mean, I don't think he knows what sanctimonious means, but somebody. Yeah, I don't think he knows how to spell it or or what it means. Um, Trump will freeze the field. Trump will win Republican primaries. Uh, he, he will keep good people out of the race. But in a general election, even Biden, uh, in his diminished capacity, would beat Trump. People yeah. need to understand that. People who care about, you know, uh, economic, you know, economic policies or old-time conservatives should understand that Trump can't win a general election. He can't. Um, a, a sort of evidence to that, I want to now go to our third um, topic, which is something which uh, you did great uh, research up until now. I spent last night uh, prepping for today, uh, watching the HBO uh, special that came out on the fourth anniversary of the Tree of Life shooting of October 27, 2018. It was October 27, 2022. Now, you on this platform have, all, have, have proudly mentioned 
often your deep, deep connections, of course, raised in Pittsburgh and very close to the Squirrel Hill neighborhood. Um, this was a, uh, a documentary uh, by Trish Aldisik, uh, Adelsik, who um, seems to be a Jewish woman. Uh, and she already from day one uh, planted herself in that area and collected film and footage and interviews. Uh, the film is really uh, an interesting one. Uh, it doesn't have your usual narrative arc. Um, I, I will tell you uh, that I was, my eyes, it doesn't take much to get me to cry. Um, but clearly, you know, especially the latter part of the film, when they spoke about the uh, two brothers, the Rosenthal brothers, um, David and Cecil, yeah. who of uh, developing disabled boys, um, and the simcha that they had uh, in coming to Shul, the simcha that they had in holding the Torah, the simcha that they brought to everyone, um, you know, I, it, it really struck a deep chord. As you know, I have a sister who was disabled who died just a number of weeks after uh, the shooting. Um, and when the Rosenthal's, uh, their parents are still alive. Um, and both of them said how uh, they felt that God wanted their child their children back um even though they were shot down by this this horrible uh right wing uh it, it was so moving uh moving about these corbonos and remembering them but what was i i really felt objectionable about the film was that it equated uh, bowers with trump it made sure to uh when it talked about bowers's um, statements on whatever social media platform or things it was connected to, the film jumped ahead to January 6th. Uh, the film made sure to give you images that Trump is responsible. The, the voices um, of protest that you heard in Pittsburgh when Trump came to visit, uh, if you remember, there was protests from the survivors themselves. We're mourning, we're grieving, stay away from here. We don't want you. Um, and I know that. Listen, I, listen. I don't. I don't believe Trump is responsible for Pittsburgh. Uh, I believe that um, Trump is an old-fashioned New York who grew up in the ethnic, you know, stew of New York, and you know, and where it was considered completely politically correct to say, or not. I don't know. If it was, I, that's a little bit of extreme. It was considered acceptable. You know, to say things like, oh, I need the best Jewish lawyer I can get. Right. You know, everyone dealt with those ethnic labels. Oh, I need an Italian plumber. You know, it was just how New York was in the 60s and the 70s. You know, he, you know, is he, I wouldn't call, I, I, I may get in trouble. Is I don't think Trump's a racist. I think he's a xenophobe in the way he spoke about immigrants in certain countries. I wouldn't call him a racist or an anti-Semite. Um, I, I. I think Trump has a huge problem, huge problem in that he is a fanatical narcissist, in that he sees everybody through the prism of their relationship with him. You know, when uh, when Kanye West said his stuff recently, uh, what did Trump say? He was good to me. I mean, now, I understand people thinking that. I don't understand for life me somebody saying that out loud. I understand 100%. You know, a friend of yours gets in trouble, yeah, you're more likely to defend them. But to actually say out loud that you're going to forgive flagrant anti-Semitism because the guy was, to say that out loud, 
I mean, bespeaks either a complete obliviousness to how normal people think and function. I, I, you know, so I, you know, did did Trump energize some extreme voices in America? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, what I do know for sure is that uh, Obama made the right wing crazy. Trump made the left wing crazy and stupid. Um, uh, and, and you know, and, and Trump certainly he doesn't uh, conduct himself with the uh, decorum that we associate with uh, with, with, with normally uh, or hope to associate with with political leaders. Uh, but uh, you know, Democrats never spend enough time thinking about why it is that after eight years of having a remarkably eloquent Democratic president as Barack Obama, did the next election, uh, uh, you know, bring Trump to the off into the white in, in, into the well, Oval Office? They, you know, what was it? What happened? And and they didn't understand how Trump Trump's election was triggered by many things. Number one, having a very easy opponent to beat, like Hillary Clinton, who's universally reviled. That you know, that was Trump's great muscle, great great good luck. And the other thing was. You know, as much as people may not have liked Trump, they knew one thing. The people who they didn't like hated Trump. <clears throat> and uh, the, extreme, the extreme cultural uh, uh, movements on the left, you know, brings to power people like Trump. But again, I think it's, it's, it's so noble uh, that we, they wanted to produce a lasting monument to these 11 Corbonois and the men and the other people right. that were wounded. Right, we right, that. right, right. So what, 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 I, what I, as a critic and as a rabbi and as your friend, am telling you is that it's unfortunate that we couldn't just hear no, the it's, story. But it's, again, it's part of a, a longstanding craziness in, on the American Jewish left, which is that it's Jewish, the most Jewish value is tikkun olam, which I don't even know what those words mean anymore, right. that... You know, as somebody put it, the uh, reform movement is the Democratic Party with holidays. Yes. And, 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 and that's it. They believe this is an expression of their Jewishness to be anti-Republican, to be anti-Trump, and that it is Jewish to be a liberal. What's interesting, of course, is we know the members of that synagogue, which was really three different shuls of three dying shuls, a beautiful building that right. was being rented out. But most of the people there were older of, of the old democratic ilk, and it was, uh, it wasn't. They were able to talk a say by, you know, to, to say the old Vayibin uh, Soa. They were able to sing Uvenu Chayomar. They were able to bring out Jewish, what we know as typical Jewish ideas. It wasn't like I don't recognize them as Jews, but the problem was, as you said, they fused it totally and completely. No, in the mind of many American Jews. It is Jewish to be a liberal. It's Jewish to vote Democratic. Well, well, this is a Jewish value. Well, well, yes. the, the film mentioned how Chabad in Pittsburgh uh, ran a, uh, a program after the death of these 11 to get everyone to do 100 mitzvahs right. per each a day. So in other words, to do 1,100 mitzvahs a day. Right? That was what they did. We're going to do 1,100 mitzvahs a day as a Iwi as a, and And one of the things that the film talks about is when one of the children who was talking about what Mitzi's going to do, I'm going to help refugees. I'm going to help refugees today. That's going to be my mitzvah. And I, I think uh, that was, in a way, I think took took a little bit off, and not a little bit. I'm going to say it took a lot out of the film. The film ends up being really a propaganda film 
as opposed to a film that... that no, but they consider this, just you know, it's a Jewish value. Listen, we all believe in helping all people. We all believe in that. Of course. And I'll, but, look, the telling... I'll, I'll tell you a story that I heard from Eric Ward. Eric Ward is a long time, is an African-American, deeply involved in the, in the struggle for, uh, for racial equality and a good friend of the Jewish community. And I had a conversation with Eric Ward in December of 2019 or January 2020, right before COVID. I, I, I was introduced to him at the, um, at, the, at the rally against anti-Semitism in New York. And I'll tell you, this is almost a direct quote. He said to me, Rabbi, your people are crazy. He says to I said, tell me why. He says, I'll tell you, I was in Pittsburgh helping the community after the shooting uh, at the synagogue, at the Tree of Life synagogue. And I wanted to organize events in response, as he does everywhere. He's a great, great man. Uh, I wanted to organize events uh, uh, in response to the shooting. And he said, every Jew I spoke to said the same thing to me. Yes, but whatever we do, it can't be just about us. It has to be about racism in general. And Eric Ward, an African-American, said to me, no. After 11 Jews are murdered in a synagogue, it can be just about you. And this impulse to universalism, this allergic reaction to anything that is specifically Jewish, uh, is is such a strange pathology of American Jewish liberal life. I'll tell you a story. Maybe I've told you this story before, but I I love the story because it's a litmus test. My son, Eliezer, who's a rabbi in California, actually going to be moving to to Texas soon, um, has a, his father-in-law is a rabbi, is, 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 a, is a wonderful uh, uh, man in Chinuch in, in Lakewood, New Jersey. He told my, my son the following story. This is my mechutin, told my son the following story. He has a friend who lives in Far Rockaway. And he was uh, there during Hurricane Sandy. I forget what year Hurricane Sandy was, about 10 years ago. And there was a huge storm. And people's properties were terribly damaged. And the, there's a Jew living next door to an Italian. And the Jewish guy every day is the beneficiary of the great charity work done by our community. People bring food, they bring clothing one day, they bring money, they help him with his house. At the end of the week of the Italian neighbor watching Jewish charities, you know, help this Jew who's had, who had suffered during Hurricane Sandy, the Italian guy knocks on the door of the Jew and says, you people are wonderful, wonderful. How you help each other is fantastic. Now, I tell this story to a group of religiously committed Jews they start crying. It's a beautiful story about Jewish chesed, how it's recognized by others. I tell this story to Jews, like Federation-style Jews. The response is outrage. They get angry when they hear the story. Why didn't the Italian guy get the stuff equally? Why don't we help everybody? Do you understand how what an unnatural response that is, how it is uniquely Jewish to think that way even, how every normal person walking this earth knows you take care of your own, and that's not embarrassing, that's a point of pride, not embarrassment, and yet, as Cynthia Ozick put it, universalism is the parochialism of the Jew. And and, and American liberal Jews who believe Trump is Satan and the most important religious expression in 2022 is to be anti-Trump are, again, part and parcel of that, you know, kind of thinking. Listen, we've all been offended by Trump. I mean, everybody has, you know, but again, to think that's the sine qua non of your Judaism, 
to be anti-Trump? Oh, it's not. I, I do want to say in that vein that there was a, a very uh, uplifting moment in this film uh, where they interviewed the, a, a very young man, a guy who was born in 92, uh, just, uh, just a 30-year-old fellow who was the uh, titular head of the Islamic uh, Society of Pittsburgh, who as soon as it was clear that there were 11 people died, he called, I'm not sure who, but he said, we're going to take care of the funerals. Yeah. That the funeral expenses, and it was raised by the Islamic community in Pittsburgh. The Islamic community in Pittsburgh, within a couple of hours, raised the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, whatever it was, that the funeral homes. Uh, a a, a African American uh, uh, fellow from Philadelphia was so moved by the the incidents that he wrote a um, uh, a a symphony that was played by the Philadelphia Orchestra. I think his, his last name was Lacombe. Um, he lives in a, a converted gas station. And he bought this gas station when he became wealthy because this was a gas station near in Philadelphia where he was not allowed to use the men's room there. And he, when he became wealthy enough, he bought that station and, 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 and sort of like glorified this spot where he couldn't use the bathroom. And he turned it into his studio, this place that was the symbol of prejudice. And it's in that studio that he wrote uh, what he calls uh, his, his symphony uh, to honor the 11 who were killed. The symphony called for the beginning of the chauffeur blowing. And, and the um, Audrey Glickman, who was one of the survivors of the shooting, was the <laughs> one who, who blew chauffeur for her, for her community. So she came to Philadelphia uh, at the, uh, in, to blow chauffeur uh, to begin uh, this symphony uh, in the Philadelphia Orchestra, so I thought it was it, it was it was it was quite moving how, as and as I'm going to say, the African Americans, the Muslims, they do recognize this as a specifically attack on Jews, and therefore they wanted to, in, in a way, embrace and support. I'll, it's unfortunate that we feel that we can't accept that. It's still worth seeing, and it's still worth to uh, right. Most moving moments that I had on my recent trip there to Israel was to go to the Harnochel of Rabbi Rubin, um, the uh, the shul that also had the massacre. You can see the bullet holes there. Um, you can see um, where uh, the people were killed. You can see uh, how it's been dedicated, and I wonder. And here's what where I'm after here. Had there everybody that was killed was part of the Haredi uh, society. Um, I don't know if that's as fetching of a topic to create the documentary about about their lives. But I would I, I would encourage all of our listeners um, to go and find out about that slaughter as well. And was then, it was that was Moshe Tversky was killed, right? Moshe Tversky was killed along with so many other Sadiq. And so I, I, I would encourage our audience um, to, to go to their, their Shul's website uh, to see, again, a, 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 a befitting uh, monument that they have done in terms of the Divrei Torah that they consistently publish uh, for those. In fact, in the Shul there, when you go there, you can see a, a special uh, section that's called Ateras Kedoshim, a 
crown of the, of the ones who died on Kiddush Hashem, including, of course, a special spot for the Druze officer who, who was right. the one who went in and risked his life and gave up his life. So when we talk about terrible attacks on our places of worship, um, let's not forget uh, where our heart and soul is. Uh, indeed, and I think the Shulan Harnof uh, exemplifies that uh, to the ultimate level. That's about it, my friends. We'll catch you. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.